0: My name is Mark, and I get to serve as one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to bring the sermon this morning. I just, uh, as we're getting started, I just, I love Sundays, and I love singing with you. I love hearing your voices lifted to worship and honor our great God, and it's, I just love being here with you each Sunday, and um, uh, one just sort of announcement note as we uh, get going with the message. Um, At a recent member meeting, we uh, mentioned that we're going to shift the Lord's Supper to uh, receiving that every other week. And so this will be the first of the other weeks when we're not receiving the Lord's Supper. So that's what's happening this morning. This morning, we're continuing in our series in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, The title of our series is Amazing Grace. And um, We're going to be in chapter four. We're reading from the English Standard Version. If you picked up one of those black Bibles on your way in, we're on page 915. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to uh, grab it and keep one of those Bibles. There's some out in the lobby and, and around different places as well. But Jess Caudill is going to read the passage for us. So Jess, please come and please prepare to hear God's word.
1: Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you.
0: Thanks, Jess. Let's pray. Oh God, we live in a sea of voices. We hear and read so many words in a week. Here is a unique moment in our week. Assembled as your people, the Holy Spirit present as we are your living temple, and now your word open in front of us we have just heard these words and we humbly confess God we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth we need you we need your word we need your perspective on our lives on our world and so we look to you now and pray, help us set aside distracting thoughts, condemning thoughts. Help us, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the words in Galatians 4, 8 to 20. And would you enable us then to be doers of what we hear for the glory of your name. Amen. When I was growing up, my sister Jen and I fought like cats and dogs. There was a point where, my mom, she didn't tell us this at the time, she told us later, she was pretty sure one of us wasn't going to make it out of childhood. We were often fighting, and often after those arguments, my mom would say something like this to me. She would say, Mark, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. Well, maybe somebody else has heard that too growing up. Mark, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. Now, my mom was trying to persuade me of something. She was trying to persuade me that the reason I just got in a fight with my sister wasn't because I was wrong. Sometimes I was, but... Most of the time it wasn't cuz I was wrong it was just because I was an arrogant jerk that was my problem now my mom was way too nice to put it that way but the problem was my delivery was lacking and it didn't give my sister ears to hear what I had to say so I might have been right in what I had to say but I failed to persuade her of anything because my delivery was all wrong so Let's take this point of wisdom that my mom was trying to bring to me then and, and bring it to a, a question in front of us here today. So when someone you love is in trouble, they're making bad decisions, they're getting off track, they're believing lies, what do you do? What do you do? Now, of course, there's no formula for moments like this. We need great wisdom but I think for many of us, in, in moments like that, when you have a friend, a loved one, who's sort of in trouble, they're believing a lie, they're, they're heading in the wrong direction, a lot of us, our tendencies can kind of go in one of two directions. Either we can sort of withdraw, because it's kind of scary to think about bringing this up, or the other end of the spectrum, drop a truth bomb. Just get out the truth flamethrower and just... Now... If you think about the outcome of either of those strategies, neither is likely to be very successful, right? If you just withdraw, you're not going to be able to help the person. And if you drop a truth bomb, well, let's be honest, it might make you feel better. But it's probably not going to change their mind about anything, any more than I was changing my sister's mind growing up. We need a better way in moments like this. So what we need in situations like these is... We need to find ways to persuade our loved one to see their error. And it's not easy to do that, is it? Persuasion can take many forms. And sometimes when a loved one is in trouble, we need a variety of ways to seek to persuade them of where they've gone wrong. Now, what does any of that have to do with Galatians 4 verses 8 through 20? Here's the situation. There's a group of churches that are in trouble. They have been seduced by a lie. And the lie is this. If you want to be a Christian, faith in Jesus is great. Keep that. But in addition, you need to add something to that. And in this case, you need to add compliance to all these Old Testament laws, the works of the law. Paul, the writer, is lathered up about this. He is very concerned about this. And the high point, the the key theological point that he has to make to to address this error is there in chapter 2 and verse 16. This is a verse worth memorizing. Let me give you just part of it, the, the, the nugget here. We know that a person... Is not justified by works of the law, but notice the contrast not, but not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean to be justified? Well, do you know when things are good between you and another person, when things are right between you and another person, or when things aren't good between you and your spouse, you and a friend, you and a boss, or a co worker? Well, It's the same with our our relationship with God. For us to be right with God, to be in a right relationship, to be justified with him, there's one and only one way for that to happen. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ, not through works of the law. So chapter 2, verse 16, there's the truth. Okay? He puts it right in front of him. Now, he could have stopped there. And if he's taken the truth bomb approach, then the next thing he would have said was, so... You losers, repent and believe. Love, Paul. (laughs) End of letter. He could have done that. But here we are, well into chapter 4, and he's still writing. Why? Chapters 3 and 4 exist because this man will not stop with simply dispensing the truth. He's launching into full persuasion mode. I want you to see what he's doing here. He's launching into full persuasion mode, seeking to get these Christians to change their minds about what is true about justification. And so, if you read back through chapters three, and four, you can do that and list out all the different ways he seeks to persuade them. He appeals to their experience. He says, look, how'd you get the spirit? You didn't work for it. You received it by faith. And then he says, hey, let's go back to scripture. Remember Abraham, our great forefather, how did he get in a right relationship with God? It wasn't by doing something. It was by he believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was counted to him as Righteousness. So he's appealing to their experience. He's appealing to Scripture. And then he's, he goes back to history, redemptive history, and he says, hey, wait a second. Remember that promise that was given to Abraham? That came before the law that was given in the, in the desert after Israel came out of Egypt. And so that, that giving of the law doesn't set aside that promise. So he's, he's trying to persuade them in as many different ways as he can. So he's continuing that work of persuasion in this passage with three other approaches, three different approaches to to persuasion. And, And we're going to look at those in just a moment. But I want to try to summarize what we can get from this passage under this heading. When Christians we love are caught in lies. So we might just pause there. Are you in a relationship right now with someone that you love and you're concerned about where they are spiritually? When Christians that we love are caught in lies, love compels us to look for any way possible to persuade them to return to gospel truth. There's my thesis. Let's see if this passage can support what I'm putting out in front of you here. Can we learn from this passage about how to persuade a wayward Christian friend, brother, sister? So first... We're going to see an appeal to their experience. Now, he's appealed to a previous experience back in chapter 3. But look in chapter 4 where our passage starts in verse 8. And I want you to notice there's a contrast here. So here's what it says. Notice the before and after language. Look at verse 8. Formerly, okay, notice the language there. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature, not God's. But now, see the contrast formerly, but now, but now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? He's saying, look, I know you guys. I was with you. And here's your situation, and I want you to notice, he can speak, this is actually a whole, this isn't one church, this is a whole group of churches, a whole region of churches, and he can speak universally about their experience and say this, before, in the past, formerly, there were two things true about you. One, you didn't know God, and two, you were enslaved to these non-gods, these work, weak and worthless elementary principles. Now, why can he say this so universally about this whole group of people? Hundreds, maybe thousands of people. We don't know. Lots of people. Why can he say this? If you don't know God, you're a slave to something that's less than God. He can say this because what he's saying is universally true for all people. All people, you and me, everybody on your street, everybody that you work with, you and me, all of us, we are on a treasure hunt for something that will make life worth living. And whoever or whatever we think can make life worth living, that will control us, will come under its power. So what do you think will do that? What do people in our city think will do that? Is it wealth, sex, power, pleasure, success? All these things are what Paul is referring to here as weak and worthless elementary principles. If if you think one of those things can make life worth living, you become a slave to that thing. They are false gods. They can't deliver what we hope they will. They cannot deliver life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that Christ came to free us from these counterfeit gods. How does he do that? He becomes one of us, born of a woman, Born under the law, we heard last week. He becomes one of us to deliver us from slavery to these weak and worthless elemental principles, these false gods. And when we receive Jesus as our Lord, our broken relationship with the one true God is restored. And so, as he then goes on to say, we know God and are known by him. He's appealing to their experience. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know God and you're known by him. And oh, church, you know God. Do you know that you're known by him? As we heard last week, he adopts us into his family. He puts his spirit in us and he knows every square inch of who you are. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And knowing you, he loves you. I was thinking about this this week and I was just remembering when our first child, our son was little and I'd be in one room and I'd hear him cry in another room. I'd, I'd try to listen real hard and a lot of times I could figure out kind of what was going on by the way he would cry. Parents, have you ever noticed like kids have different cries? Is it, so you're, you're, is that a hurt cry? Is that a mad cry is that a hungry cry because those different cries are going to get different responses. They're going to be a different path to bringing help there. And I was thinking, wow, in all my weakness and all my limitations and faults, if, if I could feel such affection for my child and know my child that well, how much more our heavenly father, oh, church. He knows you, and he loves you. But imagine then, having come to know God and be known by him, going back to the old, enslavering, false, counterfeit gods. That's what these people are doing. And he's saying, how can you do this? How can you turn back again to to those things that aren't even God's. These were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and what they were proposing to do was to keep all the works of the law. Now, what is this law that Paul keeps talking about in Galatians Well, the law is what God gave Israel when they came out of Egypt. So if you want to know what the law is that they wanted to keep, well, just go back in your Bibles and read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and note every command that's given there. That's what they were talking about doing. It's the kosher food laws. It's the sacrifices and the temple. It's the purity laws like not wearing mixed fabric, so all these kinds of things. It's days and months and seasons and years, which probably means keeping the Sabbath and observing all the festivals and all the features of the Jewish calendar. Now, there's nothing wrong with anybody doing those things unless you think it's those things that will bring you into right relationship with God. And if you think that, what you're doing then is you're putting yourself back under the old enslaving principles. And Paul wants to persuade them not to do this, so he's he's reminding them from their experience, look, you once lived in slavery, now you're free, why would you go back? His appeal is to their experience. The second appeal is in verse 12. I'm going to single out this one verse, because this is a key verse, not only in our passage, but in this letter. Look at verse 12 with me, please. I'm going to read the first sentence here. Brothers... I entreat you. Can you hear the the urgency of persuasion? I entreat you. I'm pleading and begging with you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. There's persuasion intended here. I went on a trip with Kevin Pagoda recently to a conference, and while we were together, I discovered he has a degree in rhetoric. Rhetoric. What's rhetoric? I have a degree in forestry. I don't know what rhetoric is. (laughs) Explain to me. Rhetoric is sort of the art of persuasion. It's kind of what we're talking about here today. And he said, classically, in, in rhetoric, you can persuade someone by logic, by emotion, or by authority. Paul here, in verse 12, is appealing to authority. How's he doing that? Well, sometimes what you do to persuade someone is you point to a trusted messenger. You point to someone that they have respect for and you highlight what you're trying to get them to see by pointing to that person. And so what he's doing here is he's singling himself out as a trusted messenger and appealing to them to see something in him. Now, why do I pull this verse out and make it its own point? Why does it have so much strength and power and emphasis in this passage that I would do that? Because here... There's a command. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. That, here in chapter 4 and verse 12, that is the very first command to these wayward Christians to actually do anything. For f- uh, the, 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 the first three and a half chapters, four and a half chapters, he's been appealing to them about their error, but he actually a- hasn't actually told them to do anything yet. And now he's telling them, be as I am. In fact, if you wanted to translate this literally, word for word, it would simply be this be like me. Maybe that's where Gatorade got their deal for be like Mike, right? Now, we're not talking about being like Michael Jordan here. We're talking about being like Paul. How? Why? Paul is saying that there's something about his life that's worth imitating. What is it? Well, it's his new way of relating to God justified by faith and not by works of the law. He's not saying that they should imitate everything about who, who, who he is, his favorite brand of sandals, his favorite choice of restaurants in any particular city. No, he's saying imitate His faith in Christ as the only means to be in a right standing with God. He's saying, look, I left everything behind to follow Christ. I trust him and his gospel with all my heart. And oh, would you be like me? Would you be like me in that way? It's his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that's worth imitating. And again, now how is this persuasive? It's only persuasive if he's a trusted person. And he can only be a trusted person if there's a relationship with him. They have to know him for this to work. I want you to think about this. Because we live in a world where there are a lot of people expressing enormous influence. YouTubers. YouTubers. Influencers, entertainers, but are those trusted people? How do you know what they're really like? Do you have a relationship with them? Does their life back up their message? Who really knows what's going on in their lives? He can say, be like me just as I became like you, because he lived with them. They know him. I remember reading about a celebrity pastor who would arrive at church in a limo, come into the back door, preach the sermon, and then just leave. That's not the kind of pastor Paul was. He didn't arrive in limos. They knew him. Brothers and sisters, we need models and mentors we need people who we can look at and say, okay, that helps me understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we need to be willing to be people like that as well. People in trouble, especially people in trouble, need to see truth lived out in real life. That's why your testimony is so powerful to people who know you No matter when you came to faith in Christ, even if you' were a young child growing up in a Christian family, there's always a before and an after, and there's always a, "This is either what I was or what I, what I would be without Christ. And this is what Christ has done in me. Be like me. Could we say that to someone else? We're not perfect. But in walking by faith, justified by faith. The accuser of the brothers, the enemy of our souls, the devil is always whispering lies to us. He wants to silence us from saying things like that. But brothers and sisters, if you've moved from slavery to freedom in Christ, from not knowing God to knowing God, And being known by God. If your sins have been forgiven and you've been brought into right standing with the creator of the universe. If you've been adopted by God and know him as your father and his spirit is in you. Then you can say to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Or someone who's in trouble in their faith. Be like me. Come and enjoy new life and the joy that I'm finding in Christ the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I would just pause here this morning and ask, do you you know this freedom? You. Do you know this Christ? Can you say he loves me and gave himself for me? Do you know the blessing of being adopted into God's family? Do you know what it's like to be delivered from the enslaving power of counterfeit gods? If you don't, God has brought you here. It's not a coincidence this morning. Talk to him. Call out to him. Come see me. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about how to get to know this great and saving God. There's an appeal to experience. There's an appeal to a trusted person, a compelling example. And finally, the third pathway to persuasion here, there's an appeal to their relationship. There's an appeal to their relationship. In this section, Paul reminds them how they met, how they got to know one another. It wasn't by a great plan. He was traveling. He actually wanted to go somewhere else, But as he was passing through their area, he got stuck there because he was sick. We don't know with what. Maybe it was malaria. Maybe he was recovering from being beaten. Maybe it was this thorn in the flesh that he talks about in the letter to the Corinthians. We don't know. But we know he didn't plan to stick around, but God had other plans. And so when he showed up, they didn't reject him. They cared for him. They were kind to him. You ever been in need and had someone be kind to you, help you. That's what they did for him. And he, he was so affected and by the way they cared for him. He said, look, if, if Jesus himself had shown up, if an angel had shown up, you couldn't have cared for them any better than you cared for me. Can you, can you feel the gratefulness and affection in his heart for these people? He loves these people. But now something's changed. And he says, what happened? You're treating me like an enemy. What's what's gone wrong? You know what he's talking about? You ever had that experience? Someone that you've had a friendship with been close to and something goes south. You ever been ghosted? This is what's happening with him. These false teachers have come in they're flattering these people, they're teaching lies and and they're satisfying their own cravings for approval and idolization at the expense of these good Christians. They're not there to set people free they're there to put people back into slavery. So what happens next? I want you just to slow down and and look at verse nineteen, please. Look at that passage with me. Look at verse 19. Get your Bibles open. Look at Galatians 4.19. Should I hear the love and the passion in this verse? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My little children, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed and you, can you feel the affection in these words? My little children, that's not a condescension. He's not saying, I'm here and you're just little kids. No, this is a, this is a parent saying, I, my, you're like my children. I love you like I would love my own son and daughter. It's the longing of a parent to see his children prosper. And then he says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Why does he say that? You know, sometimes people think Paul's a sexist, kind of a male chauvinist guy, puts women down all the time. But here, he's actually identifying himself as a a mother, a spiritual mother in the anguish of childbirth. He's saying, you know, when I was with you the first time, I was in anguish that you'd be born again. I longed for that. I labored for that. I didn't just drop a truth bomb and leave. No, I stuck with you and I did everything I knew and my heart was aching for you to come to know Jesus and now that you've come to know Jesus and you're going astray, my heart is aching for you again, almost like you need to be born again, again. There's anguish and pain. He's experiencing emotional pain over the condition of these Christians that he loves so deeply. And he's he's laboring in this anguish until Christ is formed in you. Shifts the metaphor a little bit. So now he's longing for Christ to be formed inside of them, until they're on the solid ground of the gospel, until the character of Christ is being formed in them and the fruit of the Spirit is 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 is, is oozing out of them and and they're beginning to think and act more and more like Jesus. His attitudes, his emotions, his words, his deeds till Christ is formed in them. What kind of a person could write a sentence like this? Only a person who's passionate for the spiritual condition of other people. Can you see what's happened? This is a guy who used to persecute Christians. He hated Christians. Now, formerly, now, he's in anguish over wayward Christians. How did that happen? He's been greatly loved by God. And now, having been so greatly loved by God, he's compelled by God's spirit working in him to greatly love these wayward believers. He doesn't have to write this letter. He's got other things to do. He can write them off. He can leave this to somebody else. But his affection is so overflowing that he must stay engaged with them and communicate how passionately he longs for them to come back to that place of freedom in Christ. I I'm in anguish for you. And you know, as I stand here and look around the room this morning, I see face after face that lives like this. And that's one of the reasons I love being a member of our church. I'm in anguish for you. I see this passion for the spiritual condition of others in so many people in our congregation. parents, with wayward children. Oh, parents, as you love your prodigals and your wayward children, how I see the Spirit of Christ, how I see this passion in you. Keep going, don't give up. Elders, I love being a, one of the elders, and one of the things I get to see as an elder is how elders, just privately in ways you, you might not ever know about, care for the flock. Over the last few weeks, as little Jack Lee has been in some significant health challenges. I've loved getting the texts and interactions with Tom Van Raphorst and how he, as an elder, is just pouring his life out for Si Young and Sarah and Jack. If you don't know what's going on, there's a Caring Bridge link that'll come out in the email after the service. I was with someone this week who does some counseling in our church, and she was weeping with compassion about someone that she's meeting with just spilling out of her. I love seeing the way you members care for one another. Edward already mentioned it, but Chris and Nancy, you two in particular, the hospitality and the care and the affection that you express. I see what I read about here. I read it in this congregation. You know, during our week of prayer and fasting, we had some great times coming together to pray together. Just want to encourage, maybe this is a, a connection point. How can we keep praying together? How can we keep drawing near to God together? I wonder, as you have people on your heart that you're in anguish over, I wonder if we could bring those into our community groups. Maybe next time we meet, just have some time to Pray for you and pray for those who are on your heart. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. When Christians you love are caught in lies, Love compels us not to give up. No. Love compels us to look and keep looking, to pray and keep praying for any way possible to persuade them to return to gospel truth. Let's pray. The band can come on back up. Oh God, how you have loved us. How deep your love for us. Having been loved now by some miracle, we love in ways that we never have or never could without you. And I want to bring before you before we return to singing, every person here who's carrying with anguish a loved one, would you remind them right now that they are known and seen by you? Would this be a holy moment of you drawing near and them experiencing freshly hope, encouragement, Persevering grace. And oh God, we pray that today, tomorrow, in the coming week, in the coming months, in the coming years, we might see wayward loved ones come home to be with you, to walk in the truth, to know the freedom that only Christ can give. And we pray even beyond that, that those outside your kingdom for whom we are in anguish, that we would live to see them come in to know and be known by you through Christ. For the glory of your name, I pray. Amen.